Hey peeps, it's Panve here, reminiscing about this particular episode since it was a fabulous excuse to spend time with many of our friends while visiting London. Shout out to Liz, Gav, Sarah, Edward, Arturo, Artem, Suki, Fard, Elena and their two many humans for coming to see us. And naturally, thanks to our guest Oz for trekking into central London to talk neuroscience, podcasts, comedy and minorities in STEM. So hello friends, this is your host Palm Vera of Two Scientists, currently in my old stomping ground of London and around UCL, which is actually where I got my PhD. And funnily enough, this is also where today's guest, Oz, Oz Ishmael? That's right, that's me. Um, uh, Got his PhD very recently, Yeah, like months ago. (laughs) And how was that for you? Now that I think about it, uh, it's great, but at the time it wasn't, uh, but I'm so happy that it's done. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's a great feeling. It's easy to say in retrospect. Yes, definitely. I think that most of 2019 was spent uh, writing a thesis, and that wasn't great, but once I got to my Viva, I actually really enjoyed the process. Like halfway through, I was like, this is all right. I did this stuff. It, absolutely. I think yeah. it's the point at which you say, well, you know what? I know what I'm talking about. And I probably know more about this than anyone else in the world right now. Yeah. It's funny. Everyone tells you that, but you don't believe it until you're actually there yeah. and defending your thesis. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I do know my stuff. Yeah. You know. So give us some background as to how you got there. I mean, what was it that drew you to science in the first place? Uh, I think just... It was the only subject that I was good at. <laughs> <laughs> I was terrible at maths and terrible at English and like all the other subjects I did at school. But science was like the one. Biology, in fact, was the one I was like, I, I get this. And it's it came naturally to me. Yeah. So as I went through school and high school and all that, I was like, science seems like, like being a scientist seems like an interesting route for me. Yeah. I didn't. I thought about being a doctor for a while, you know, just like typical like South Asian thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should be a doctor because I'm good at science. Um, but no, I, I just thought I, I liked like the like the new knowledge that I was learning, even even the basic knowledge I was learning as in in high school yeah. was like interesting. So for me, like that idea of discovery was interesting, and that's why I thought, okay, I want to be a scientist. I want to get into maybe get into research yeah but I wasn't sure until I got to undergrad um so I went I did my undergrad in Hertfordshire and as part of the degree I was doing like applied bioscience or something very like broad uh-huh. and as part of the degree they offered um this opportunity to do a uh, work placement mm-hmm. and I went to Brunel University and worked in a neuroscience lab there oh, and wow. that was like mind-blowingly amazing to yeah. just be doing hands-on science and feeling like I was making discoveries, uh-huh. however small they were. Um, and that's the point I thought, yeah, this is definitely what I want to do. Um, so I went back, finished my degree. Uh, but because of like uh, complications with visas and stuff, I couldn't jump straight into a PhD. Um, so I went and worked as a research scientist for five years at the Wellcome Trust Sanger oh, Institute. Okay. Yeah. So I worked on like uh, genetics for five years. Um, mostly, so I say genetics, but it was like a phenotyping, so it was like characterizing different genes um, across the whole entire genome. Mm-hmm. And so we would get like models that basically my job was to take x-rays of mice. Oh, yeah. Okay. And just like <laughs> basically each each model I'd get would be missing one gene and I'd have to figure out if that did anything to the mouse's bones. Oh, I see. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
And so how how then do you measure what changes might have taken place in the bones? So, it's, uh, so I was doing two things. I was doing uh, looking at mor morphological differences, so doing actual x-rays and physically analysing every single bone, um, which was... Like uh, every single bone every in the mouse? Every single bone. I've okay. counted so many bones. <laughs> <laughs> in my okay. life there was a there was a time when I, I i would like go to sleep and all i would see was just bones fun. it was not fun <laughs> um but there's that but then also there's a different x-ray technique uh where you use two different x-ray energies and you look at the difference that goes through the body yep and you can calculate how dense the bone is mm -hmm. um so i was doing that as well and basically that was telling me if any genetic changes were contributing to like density of bone changing yeah um which is fun. I mean, I set up like that whole uh, sort of that part of the pipeline that we were studying. Um, but I did that five years and I thought, okay, I've kind of done. I've kind of reached. <laughs> the zenith for bones. For yeah, me. like there's nothing more I can learn about bones. <laughs> <laughs> so I needed to change. And um, I was looking at other sort of research opportunities around, uh, around the country, really. And this job came up at UCL. Uh, it was studying, uh, it was doing brain imaging. So I was doing bone imaging first. I thought yeah. imaging was fun, but I'd like to image something that wasn't bone. Uh -huh. <laughs> so uh, brain imaging sounded fun. And I really enjoyed neuroscience when I was doing my undergrad uh, degree. So I applied for it. Uh, I got in as a research technician and it was, uh, the project was with Eli Lilly trying to uh, kind of identify new, like early markers of dementia. Right. And that's how I kind of got into the dementia research space. Um, did that for a few years. Again, was super interesting to me. So I thought this is kind of uh, an interesting route for me to maybe go down my PhD. Yeah. Uh, and around that time, I was lucky, I guess, I got offered funding uh, both from Eli Lilly and also got a scholarship from UCL. Oh, nice. So I was like, well, time to do my PhD now. I've waited <laughs> long enough. Um, and that's how I got into doing a PhD in dementia. Oh, very good. So it's not specifically on Alzheimer's? Uh, it is. So okay. it is and it isn't. So um, whilst the broad subject matter is Alzheimer's, right. uh, I was specifically trying to study how one of the mechanisms by which the brain cleans itself off waste. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> the part of Alzheimer's disease, like the disease process, is that we get these proteins that accumulate in the brain. And I was trying to understand if this new clearance system called the glymphatic system yep. was responsible for removing these proteins. Yep. And more specifically, I was trying to image that in the mouse brain to see uh -huh. if I can see any differences. Okay. So we actually have a fair few people here who used to work on Alzheimer's. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's like my Bible maybe, all over again. Maybe. Yeah. I think I, the problem is, for, except for Sarah Hoey, who's hiding over there. Hi, Sarah. Um, yeah, everybody here was kind of working on Alzheimer's, but not. Yes, so I did wow. that for a little while. Um, but yeah, so I think that people probably um, are familiar with the, the kind of the perceptions of what Alzheimer's looks like mm -hmm. in terms of somebody being forgetful or maybe becoming more aggressive and so on. And the fact that this is a disease that's on the rise. But what do we know about what causes it and what, what happens during the kind of the development of the disease? So that's um, the million dollar question, isn't it? Because we yeah. still don't fully know what causes it. And the problem is what we know now is the, the most common form is the sporadic form. We still don't understand why people get it. We just know that as you get older, you, ha you are more predisposed to it. Yep. 
but there aren't uh, aside from the ge the genetic forms which are which only account for a small percentage of Alzheimer's disease the sporadic forms we still don't fully understand why we get it um, so I think that is that is probably why it's on the rise because um, and also the fact that we're curing other diseases means that mm -hmm. we're living longer which is another reason why Alzheimer's disease is, is going up yep. and spiking up and that means that people people including like governments are paying more attention to it because it's becoming such a crisis now mm -hmm. Uh, that if we don't solve it, we're going to have people who are getting a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease caring for people who have full-blown Alzheimer's disease. Like, yeah. that is the route we're going down, and that's really scary. Oh, yeah. That's grim. Yeah. So, um, at this point, still don't know why people get it. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. That doesn't really answer your question. <laughs> no, I mean, but then that is the problem, right? Yeah. Is that how do you even start to treat something when nobody understands... Where it, where it comes from, what underlies it. Yeah. So one of the articles that David shared on Twitter recently was kind of interesting in the sense that um, one of the main focuses for a target for the disease has been beta amyloid. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so essentially this article was saying that that kind of created this cult-like mindset within Alzheimer's research that then basically said, Sarah Hoey's nodding her head, um, that essentially meant that anybody else who was trying to say, well, we think that uh, oxidative stress might be important, mm. the dysfunction of uh, components of cells like mitochondria might be important, they didn't get very much funding. Yeah, I think uh, that's absolutely right. I do think that's changing now. It, like every year when I go to the annual conference, there's definitely this like rivalry between the different groups. Like amyloid beta people think that they're still like the kings of research in the <laughs> field. Um, but I think people are changing their mindset. People are looking at other places. Because we've looked at amyloid beta for so long and we still yep. don't have the answer. So uh, people are looking at other routes. And I think people are changing their mindset as well. Maybe people who've worked on amyloid beta for a long, long, long time are still... And I think, it's, I think we still should pay attention to it because that's yeah. one of the hallmarks of the disease. We still don't fully understand w why it happens and what to do about it. Yeah. Um, but I don't think looking at just one thing in isolation, it's the same with the other protein that accumulates is tau. Mm -hmm. There's a whole group of researchers, like I specifically studied tau myself. Okay. But again, studying it in isolation is kind of meaningless. Yeah. Because there's so many different reasons why that could, like, th that could accumulate. Yeah. And so we need to look at it from every, different, every angle, I think. Yeah. And I think that is definitely what's happening now. But maybe it's taken, the Alzheimer's research field has taken time to gain that momentum and to Which gain that funding. I find baffling though. I mean, I think cancer research has probably cottoned onto this pretty quickly. Yeah. Which is to say that this is not a single disease. It's not one isolated thing that's taking place within mm. cells. So, I mean, I just, I find it so hard to understand why a, an entire field of research, which, and this is essentially hampered a potential development of new drugs as a result. Absolutely. And I think, I think we look at, if you take things like cancer or like heart disease, something like very i don't know like tangible about the disease like you feel like you know it you feel like mm -hmm. you know someone with it or you've suffered from it at some point like everybody feels like they've been affected by it yeah what people don't realize is at some point everyone is going to be affected by alzheimer's either you will get it or someone you know is going to get it yeah but i think for many decades we've looked at it as oh it's something that happens to old people so like we'll just give in to it when it happens yeah and it's only now that we're stopping and going, actually, 
we don't have to get old and get Alzheimer's disease. It's a disease. We should be able to cure it and we should be able to stop it yeah. or slow it down. And I think that kind of mindset, both, I think maybe the, the public mindset has changed more recently or is changing now. Whereas I still speak to people who are like, oh, well, I guess Alzheimer's disease is something that happens when you get old. And it's hard to, for people to understand, like, actually, no, it doesn't. There are people who are aging healthily. Yeah. Why can't we all age healthily? Yeah. Right? I mean, so what is the state right now of um, kind of pharmaceutical development of new drugs for these things? Um, so I think it's, uh, again, it, it, there's so, so, so many drugs that have entered these pipelines. A lot of them have failed and they're looking, and they're not just looking at amyloid beta, they're looking at uh, tau, they're looking at neuroinflammation, they're looking, they're, they are looking from many different angles. <coughs> But the problem is nothing has reached a phase where it's past trials. And the only therapies we have right now is for symptomatic relief. So to just slightly slow down or make life slightly better for someone who's suffering from it. Um, but there are so many new cohort studies that are, that are ongoing where they're recruiting people uh, from a very young age to understand how lifestyle affects um, mm -hmm. um, like disease progression. And I think the strongest thing we know right now is that basically keeping your heart healthy is the way to avoid Alzheimer's disease. Uh -huh. There's such strong evidence to say that if you do regular exercise, if you do things that will not predispose you to heart disease and diabetes or obesity, oh, that significantly reduces your risk for Alzheimer's disease. Okay. So I think lifestyle factors are definitely an interesting, uh, interesting thing right now that a lot of people are studying. And the more uh, data we get from these cohort studies, from recruiting people and understanding like how they how they live their lives, yeah. it will inform us about how we can make changes that are not pharmaceutical yeah, that yeah, yeah. might delay the onset or even stop it. Yeah, I'm all for prevention is better than cure. Yeah, I think just like my one uh, thing I say to everyone is keep your heart healthy. And, mm -hmm. Yeah, but there are other like th um, things that I was surprised. About by in terms of lifestyle factors like social isolation i never thought that was oh, yeah. a risk factor but that's a significant risk factor for for alzheimer's disease um yeah so there, there are so many different basically stay social and exercise mm -hmm. join a class oh <laughs> yeah sounds like this lot is sorted then yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so david said he sent me questions so he says what's the main challenge in curing alzheimer's basic biology, drugs, or as somebody f familiar with cancer research, he would say that in his case, the problem is the complexity, and for them, Darwinian evolution that drives it. How does Alzheimer's differ in terms of biomedical challenge? Wow, uh, that's quite the question. Isn't it? I, <laughs> yeah. uh, I think it is the complexity of the biology, the fact that we are still grappling for <coughs> like knowledge around what happens to the brain. And also the fact that, for example, like we know that uh, the Alzheimer's brain has lots of these amyloid beta plaques and tangles of tau that accumulate, but there are so many people who age cognitively normally. Once they die, you cut into their brain. They ha their brains are filled with these plaques and tangles. So that's another like conundrum, I think. The fact that we know that these things can exist in the brain technically a disease yep. but people can present normally they don't have to lose uh, all their faculties so 
the biology is so complex and still there's so much that we don't know about it. Uh, and I think that is the biggest challenge. And the f because of the way that the disease has rapidly like gone up in number, mm -hmm. we're trying to understand biology at the same time as trying to find, rapidly trying to find cures, um, which is good, but also it does make it challenging because every time we find something new about the biology, maybe the drugs can't necessarily keep up with mm -hmm. what we're finding. So yeah, it's, it's very complex. So given that we can't do anything about treatment, is there any way of, um, are there methods that have been improved in terms of diagnosis? Because that's another tricky thing, isn't mm. it? I mean, usually the degrees did, the disease progresses so yeah. far before you can finally say that this person is ill with it. Yeah, that's true. So um, in terms of diagnosis, that's another, so when I was working as a technician, that's one of, the, one of our aims uh, with Eli Lilly was to try and see if we can image the changes that are happening to the brain at a molecular level uh, before those big uh, changes that happen where the brain starts to shrink. So there are definitely, I think it's still in the research stage, but there's definitely uh, many new imaging methodologies that are being developed to sensitize both MRI scanners and PET scanners to detect very fine changes to the brain. So accumulation of amyloid beta and accumulation of tau very early on. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, we are moving towards towards being better at diagnosing it. And also I think the the big jump would be to be able to detect it in something like blood because blood mm -hmm. is so easy to access. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the blood-based markers that we have right now are still, again, in the research phase, but we're hoping that eventually we'll be able to detect these amyloid and tau and even like markers of neuroinflammation that are specific to the brain mm -hmm. um, in blood so that we don't have to do like expensive things like PET imaging or MRI imaging mm -hmm. or... Uh, painful things like doing a spinal tap to extract cerebrospinal fluid because that that's the most robust way to actually tell yeah. if these if these molecules in in the brain yeah so that kind of leads on to a question we had from Anson McKay who's former guest and friend of the show um, who said does a person's ethnicity play a role in how Alzheimer's is diagnosed uh, how Alzheimer's is diagnosed I would that say sounds like it could be a complicated question. It is a complicated question. I was just thinking uh, the way it's diagnosed, yes, because uh, I don't I don't have specifics about how like different ethnicities are affected by disease, mm -hmm. but I know that th the way it's diagnosed is difficult for some ethnicities. For for example, in some South Asian communities, um, they don't even have a word for dementia in some of the local languages. Ooh, yeah. So trying to explain to somebody. At uh, at the clinic that they have dementia is where do you start? And yeah. also there's no like material, no leaflets to give them um, because the language doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that makes it quite challenging. And also there are some communities where if it's a disease of the brain, it's still seen as something shameful. So that like, that stigma still exists, and yeah. so people might not necessarily seek uh, the help they need as early as they should. So I think in that sense, maybe different ethnicities, like culturally, maybe mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it will have an impact. Yeah. Yeah. So we actually recorded a podcast earlier this year with last year, last year, we're in 2020 now, um, with a friend of Artem's who is a psychiatrist, but he's of Chinese background. Okay. And obviously they have the same problems in terms of either how you talk to people and how you get them, how you get them treatment, whether you get them to come to the clinic at mm -hmm. all in the first place, especially with psychiatric illnesses. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
which kind of demonstrates the need for uh, more diverse backgrounds that are required both within science and within medicine and within kind of counseling and so on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, I agree. And so you're you're very into a lot of this kind of bringing diversity into science yeah. and STEM and so on. So one of the first things, and I think this is probably how we connected, was the Twitter handle Minority in STEM. Yeah. So tell us how that came about and what it is you're trying to achieve with it. Um, so Minority in STEM started as just a conversation between like a few of us uh, going... Uh, there we have all these we, t we were talking about a lot of issues or like maybe barriers or uh, sometimes you know even the microaggressions that happen uh, around like the workplace around the lab and how some some of us felt like you know if you're you're almost expected to just like remove all that and not see that when you're in 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 a scientific space mm -hmm. and for a while even I think like okay maybe maybe that's not relevant in this space uh, and it gets to a point where you just think, well, that's nonsense. You know, if uh, if I think there are barriers, if I think there are microaggressions happening, I should be able to talk about it. Yep. Um, and so a few of us uh, got together and we thought, well, we're, we just need a space where we can, and not just vent about it, but also talk about opportunities, uh, talk about what we can do to make things better. Uh, and so we got together and we decided to start this group on Twitter where it's like an open group for anyone who identifies as an ethnic minority who, can, who works within STEM areas. It's not, and it's not just students, it's like professional students, anyone from STEM is welcome to join. Um, we started off as just like a small group and it's just kind of grown within Twitter. And since then we've had like a couple of symposia where we've uh, invited speakers to come and give specific training workshops to do uh, public engagement. Uh, to do like writing again it's like very tailored to the fact that uh, you are not white so you know and mm -hmm. you're trying to do stuff that doesn't conform to like a white audience uh, so we specifically bring like experts from public engagement and like writing and all these different sort of backgrounds to run workshops and uh, do talks as well so it's it's still I'd say it's still like in uh, baby form it's mm -hmm. just a network really uh, uh, it's on Twitter and on Slack uh, and it's a place to share opportunities to vent about stuff uh, or to just seek help and also to socialize sometimes. Nice. Yeah. So what you do is you curate or you have somebody curating on a weekly basis and you rotate through. Yeah. So we people. invite people to uh, take, do a Twitter takeover every week uh, and they can tweet about anything from uh, their experiences to their research to their personal lives if they want to. Mm -hmm. um, basically, it's theirs for the week and... Uh, yeah, we always we're always looking for people to uh, to sh to tweet from our account. So if you're up for it, just uh, it's at Minority STEM. Just drop us a tweet, and we can get you sorted. Marvelous. Um, but so this is what drives me crazy: is that looking at how you've been working on your PhD all this time, you managed to set up this particular group. You also work on a podcast yourself. Now tell us yeah. about why aren't you a doctor yet? <laughs> so why aren't you a doctor yet also happened in a similar way to Marjorie STEM, around the same time, with some of the same people. Um, <laughs> so that came about because we recognized that uh, the, the science uh, podcast space, uh, especially in the UK, was just, very white and uh it was also it was not just the, it wasn't about ethnicity it was also the fact that it was just telling nerdy jokes and just like celebrating science which mm -hmm. is great uh but also we wanted to 
look at science and be like, we all love science, but also sometimes science is shit. And sometimes <laughs> science does terrible things to people, yep. especially from marginalized groups. Let's look at the research. Let's go find out this information and look at the research and like talk about it openly. Um, and sometimes we bring our own experiences into it. Sometimes the topic is driven by stuff that's happened to us, the stuff that we've experienced mm -hmm. or stuff that interests us. Um, and sometimes it's just, just stumbling upon things. So like, for example, we did a, an episode about uh, the tech of travel. Mm -hmm. And that was mostly the, the idea was to talk about how like tech is very quickly changing the way we, we travel internationally. Yep. But also we talk about the fact that, you know, international travel is different when you are brown and have a beard, for example. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then there are episodes where we, uh, so around when Black Panther came out, we mm -hmm. wanted to like, uh, I stumbled upon this article that talked about how the sort of the tech people on set had to carefully calibrate the lighting to make sure that every single actor like all the actors or the whole cast were like so diverse the different mm -hmm. shades of skin so they were very careful to make sure that every single actor popped out uh -huh. and I was like oh, that's interesting I never thought of that so I did some reading I went down this rabbit hole of figuring and finding out that like historically camera tech has been so deeply racist in a Ooh. way that I didn't even know yeah um, and so we did this whole episode about like the racist history of cameras um, yeah it's kind of crazy if you if you like go down like look into it and see like how basically cameras were never made for people with dark skin originally That's bonkers yeah i guess it, it probably makes some sense but you also had a really uh kind of intense episode with angela Siney, whose work has um not just her work but the, the subject of kind of eugenics and racism in mm. science is a very hot topic right yeah. now can you tell us more about that one specifically yeah so uh angela saini she wrote this book uh called uh <coughs> superior yeah superior <laughs> i was trying to think of the tagline yeah. um the oh, book is called superior and it's the, the return of race science that's it and uh, as part of her book launch, which was done at the Royal Institution, we uh, kind of did this interview or like this discussion, uh, and it was a live show recorded for our podcast. And so we talked about, um, so Angela's done all these, like, she's gone to all these amazing places and spoken to people. And uh, the book is amazing. I don't want to give too much away. You should just definitely read this book because it will uh, terrify you, but also like really just like make you sit up and look at the world differently. Um, so yeah, we, we did this book launch uh, at the Royal Institution. Uh, <laughs> funnily enough, when we did this launch, uh, someone, someone complained <laughs> um, saying that uh, the event wasn't balanced because there was no one white on the panel. Oh, oh. Well, that um, must have been sad like, for them. Did you read the brief? <laughs> did you see what we were talking about? Um, but yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a really, really great event. And... Um, yeah, yeah, we just basically talked about the book and about the fact that how like racism is driving a lot of the rise of the far right, for example. Um, yeah, yeah, it was it was incredible. Yeah, I think the problem is that if you're not sharing accurate information, then the people who are trying to leverage that to to make their racist arguments, they they just have more fuel to throw in the fire. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Now. Yeah, as I said, your list of accolades is long. So is <laughs> not only not only have you done all of this, but um, 
I was going to say, so as a South Asian, it's one thing to go to your parents and say, yeah, yeah I'm going to be a doctor, but yeah. not that kind of doctor. Yeah. <laughs> but how do you come out as a comedian to your parents? <laughs> That's an interesting one. I don't think I've fully come out to them as a comedian. Oh. Um, yeah, I just don't know whether they'll take me seriously if I tell them that. <laughs> Um, or whether they'll think maybe it's because I maybe I joke around a lot anyway so mm -hmm. they just probably think it's one of his weird jokes um, <laughs> but yeah so the, the common thing also happened around the time that we started the podcast I happened to do uh, uh, one of these uh, comedy nights around London called Sign Show Off mm -hmm. and I got roped into it completely by accident um, I went in thinking that it was just I was just going to come and talk about my research and when I got the brief I freaked out because they were like thank you for signing up to do this science comedy night and I was like whoa <laughs> no I didn't <laughs> sign up for this but then just I was just too embarrassed to, to say Back no out. yeah <laughs> I tried to get all my friends to pretend that I'd you know died <laughs> she was like no I'm not going to fake your fake your debt for you you're just going to go and do this so I did it and actually it was great fun and since then, yeah, I've been uh, doing a fair amount of uh, stand-up comedy. It it started off as like very nerdy, sciencey comedy. I think it still is, but I feel like I always have to warn people that they're not going to learn anything from me. <laughs> they're going to learn about like they're going to learn very like personal details about my life, um, but they're not going to learn any science. <laughs> well, that yeah. seems like a reasonable thing to share with people. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we actually interviewed Kyle Marion. Oh yeah, Kyle's this great. year as well. So yeah. she'll she'll be in the same season. But it seems like there's there's a, a kind of a niche of science comedy that's on the rise. Definitely, yeah. I feel like um, so. Speaking to Carl, Carl, um, she's doing great things in New York, and she, according to what she told me, it's like a lot newer in the states mm -hmm. than it is and so i feel like it's happened it's been happening in the in the uk for a while in london most certainly it's been yeah. happening for a long time and it's kind of spreading out into different parts of the uk now um but yeah it seems i'm i'm glad that it's happening in the states because you know like i'll be moving there soon so uh, <laughs> more opportunities for me to talk nonsense on the stage <laughs> with the pretense of being a scientist <laughs> okay so there are, david's definitely clicking away over there do you have another question, David? <laughs> so David says, how do you balance the need for uh, a scientist to be rigorous and detail-oriented and comedy where narrative can be more important than the facts? Mm, that's a great question. So um, I try not to be a comedian in the lab. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably for the best. Uh, I say try. I mean, I, I still... So one of the things when I... Uh, the last time I was in the States, I lived in the States for like six months and um, I joined this incredible lab where everybody was just so uh, focused and they were doing amazing things. I could see why, because they're just so focused on their work and they were, every day they were making new discoveries and then I rock up and <laughs> just like make a joke about something. And initially I think they were slightly... Um, I think they were slightly taken aback by how like lax I was about stuff. But then when I left, they were like, actually, you you loosened everybody else up as well because you didn't take yourself too seriously. And so I think that's important to like not take yourself so seriously because there's a lot of failure in science. Mm -hmm. And I think I feel like that's how it's in fact, that's definitely what kept me sane through my PhD, because when I got into the podcast and comedy, I was at the, the lowest point in my PhD. I was ready to quit. And that's Wowza. not a lie because everything was failing i was getting so much you know crap from the university about stuff 
And so I was like, I, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if it's worth it anymore. And then I found comedy and I found this podcast and it was just such a great outlet. And taking the attitude in, like the whole, like, don't be serious about, don't be so serious about stuff mm-hmm. into the lab helped me get through it and helped me, like, I don't know, it just gives you a bit more perspective, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think, so I find that in the US, the, the system seems much more hierarchical mm-hmm. and... I found it super weird that the students in our lab couldn't call our boss Tom by his name. Like they were really oh. up to, he was Dr. Taylor Clock for the first two years of their PhDs. Oh, wow. And for us, I mean, within, by my second interview with my PhD supervisor, he said, please call me Guy. Just, you know, mm-hmm. none of this Dr. Moss nonsense. Yeah. And for me, I feel that it just creates a more serious environment mm. from the get-go. But not just that, I think, so the reasons I would, I was told by, people that you know we all refer to each other by our first names is that within a year or so of your phd you're somebody's peer right you know sure i'm i'm a student and i'm studying but the research i'm doing is is just as legitimate as anyone who's been Mm. in the lab for 10 years yeah 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 so did you feel that when you know as a comparison between the uk and the us i definitely felt like uh i I felt like it was a lot more serious in the states but like i don't think that's a bad thing because my time in research and academia in London or in the UK has been more, it feels more relaxed, but that also means that things are a lot slower. Um, so I definitely felt the pace was slower. Mm-hmm. Maybe sometimes it suited me because that meant that I, it was, I was more flexible with life. Yeah. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I wasn't, that there wasn't flexibility in the States. I just felt that there, there was definitely an air of seriousness. Mm-hmm. Um, compared to compared to london at least um i don't know which one i preferred really yeah um yeah they're just different different. yeah yeah Yeah. so when do you move out there uh hopefully the end of this month i'm waiting for my visa of course (laughs) the the eternal waiting for visas yeah Yeah. uh so i'm hoping to start a postdoc role in portland at the beginning of february still in dementia research fun fun city yeah, it's a great place. Everyone should go there. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so do you see yourself setting up anything new while you're out there? Or will you carry on with Why Not A Doc remotely? Or? Yeah, so the plan for Why Not A Doc is to still be part of it. Uh, obviously, I won't be in studio as often. I can still like dial in and stuff, but we're going to kind of change things up a little bit uh, and do more segments maybe. Um, uh, in terms of my own stuff... Um, I don't know. I know that co- like Portland has a comedy scene. I just want to maybe like dip my toe in. Uh-huh. Uh, it's terrifying to to, especially because I did go to some open mics and felt like everybody was doing open mic nights. Like, <laughs> okay, this is really intense that everyone here is basically a comedian. But I don't know. Uh, try it out, I guess. See if my British uh, sense of humour. <laughs> Will either really be a hit or just really no one's going to get it. <laughs> Saying that, when I did, so uh, the first time I met Kyle was, I was in New York and she got me to do one of her gigs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a great time. So was, I think there were like one or two jokes that were maybe too British. <laughs> uh, but everything else people laughed at. So yeah, maybe the so, fact that I was speaking in a British accent was just hilarious. There, there is that possibility. Yeah. Yes. So I'm just going to milk that. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we wish you the very best of luck and we thank you so much for coming out today to speak to us. It's been great. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Sweet. Thank you.
Science Festival some years ago. Uh, if you're from the UK, you'll know which science festival this is because there's only like one that's. I, actually, maybe there are a few now, but there's one that's well known. And I was at this like drinks reception with my boss, who was a significant part of this festival, and everyone was getting tipsy. And I happened to mention that the CEO of a very well known science organization who was there at that bar was attractive. And he was like, right, I'm going to find him and I'm going to set you up with him. I was like, whoa, hold on. <laughs> First of all, he might not be into guys. <laughs> Second of all, he is the CEO of a science organization and I am nobody. So like, let's not do this. He did. He went looking for him and I had to go and hide so that we wouldn't have this like weird like, hi, <laughs> I think you're cute. Like, yeah. So that was that's my only dirt, psychom dirt I have to this day. Like that. I have that that feeling of like this almost happened because I still meet this person at other events and that's the first thing I think he doesn't know that I'm thinking that but I'm still like oh that awkward time we almost got set up you can follow Oz on Twitter at Aussie underscore Ismail and if you're in Portland, maybe you'll see him somewhere being funny once we're allowed out in public again. This episode was recorded at the Carpenter's Arms just around the corner from University College London, so we'd like to thank the staff for feeding and watering our group. The guest track in the background comes from Taylor Barnett, musician and professor of music at Virginia Commonwealth University. We thank our former guest Amy J. Hawkins for the tip of Taylor and his music. The link to his band camp can be found on our website, twoscientists.org. We only have one more episode this season, but keep an eye out on our social media as we've been recording live episodes on the theme of COVID-19. You're welcome at any point to join us, and we look forward to seeing you there. Whatever dirt. Oh, oh well. <laughs> uh, related to, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not talking about stories on dodgy porn sites or anything. But, um, no, you so can come to my stand-up for that. Yeah, <laughs> that's well, what there I you go. About, yeah. There you go.